listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. All right, Mick, so today we've got some guests with us. We've got some people from the Upper Big Blue Natural Resource Districts joining us today to talk a little bit about nitrogen and some of the environmental things that we've got to do with nitrogen. We've had a lot of interest in nitrogen this year with all the wet weather. Certainly the what Mother Nature has given us this year has been above average rainfall and nitrogen movement has been at the top of everyone's mind. So today we've got Dan Lenninger and Marie Krausnick, who are both with the Upper Big Blue NRD. Dan and Marie, could you give us just a little bit of your background with the Upper Big Blue? I started at the NRD in 2004, and uh, at that time, uh, the emphasis was on irrigation, water management, measuring soil moisture, and uh, at the present, we uh, we are doing more in uh, soil health and cover crops uh, with the idea of uh, limiting uh, leaching of nitrogen in the aquifer. Marie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I started with the district in 2001, um, working primarily with our monitoring programs for groundwater quantity and quality, um, also providing support with GIS mapping and analysis, facial analysis. Uh, currently, I am the water department manager. Uh, took that position over in 2015. So I help and provide now assistance to our board of directors to, to make policy decisions. We wanted to bring you guys in just to kind of discuss some of our uh, joint interests in managing nitrogen well and trying to limit uh, nitrogen loss from our cropping systems. We'd like to get that nitrogen into corn grain or other grains and produce uh, profit instead of having it go into our drinking water or into our surface waters. So welcome and thank you for coming to join us. Mick, you've got quite a bit of background in nitrogen management as well. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, as we look to improve our efficiency with nitrogen, what kind of things are we trying here at CVA? You know, Tim, some of the things we're do working with are stabilizers. Uh, other things are trying to encourage growers to use more split applications. Uh, it, it's a very long time from putting that nitrogen out in the fall till the when the crop needs it in June, July timeframe and keeping that nitrogen available for that crop without encountering heavy rainfall events or things that can cause leaching or denitrification of nitrogen gets to be quite a handful of things. So. Of course, you and I have a little bit different philosophies, and and I'd love to almost see all, everything. <laughs> I'd love to see all that nitrogen later uh, with a very small amount and, and ahead of that corn crop. And I understand the logistics of that, but let's think about when that corn crop uses it. V six time frame, so mid July, mid June, through July and into August is when that corn crop really uses nitrogen, and when we're putting that out in the 1st of November, that's a long time to wait. Or even if we're putting it out all out in April, that's a long time to wait. And there's a lot of things that Mother Nature take control of. And so stabilizers are a good tool in the toolbox, but they're not perfect. They don't last forever. We need to split apply that so that we're not putting so much nitrogen loss at risk. Marie, I know you guys work a lot with growers and you work with the university and you work with a, a lot of the, the agricultural providers, uh, including Central Valley Ag in, in your area. 
Now talk a little bit about what you guys try to do as far as you know education and research. Oh, thanks, Tim. Um, we do have we do have areas of our district where the nitrate levels are beginning to increase, um, and our policy is set where we we have trigger points where we trigger education, irrigation scheduling, um, and mandatory reporting. Um, we provide some training opportunities throughout the winter months, and Dan's kind of our person that organizes and and sets all those agendas. We try our best to provide information that supports kind of what you, what Mick just said, you know, encouraging the split application, um, bringing in some of the soil health, you know, aspects of agriculture and 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 stabilizers. You know, we understand that the research is there that that South Central Ag Lab that out of a, a twenty year study it, it works only twenty percent of the time. I try to tell people it works all the time. It's just only that small amount of time is when Mother Nature hands us a spring that we require them to work. Mick and I've had that discussion many times, and we had uh, oh Mike Zwingman here from uh, Verdesian not too long ago, and we just talked through that you know nitrogen stabilizers, whether it's a urease inhibitor or a nitrification inhibitor, generally are going to do what they're intended to do, whether it's a a polymer that's tended to tie something up or whether it's a bactericide that's meant to either slow or actually kill uh, some of our bacteria that convert uh, ammonia into nitrate, they do what they're supposed to do. The question is that variation of what the appropriate amount of nitrogen is for that field that year, which can vary tremendously from 50 pounds of nitrogen to 300 pounds of nitrogen. And if we could predict that, frankly, I'd mean we could predict the weather and I'd probably go make my money in the commodity markets instead of bothering with agronomy at all. Tim, I think you'd sit on a beach. Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, you mentioned a little bit soil health. That's kind of the cutting edge, it seems like, anymore, about trying to understand that interaction of nitrogen, the microbes, and water. What kind of work are you doing on soil health? Well, we uh, currently have a uh, demonstration field on the city of York's well field. Uh, they have about 480 acres. We have about 125 acres of that that we plant to a cash crop. And then as soon as the cash crop comes off, <clears throat> we plant a cover crop because we want the ground, we want a living root in the ground as often as through the year, most of the years we can to feed the microbes, to to tie up any residual nitrogen, keep it from leaching down. And, uh, and so this is only our second year, but uh, by doing soil tests, uh, we, we have uh, very low uh, nitrate nitrogen carryover in the fields that we've tested. So we feel with, with uh, reduced tillage and cover crops, and rotations that that we're on the right track right now. I would agree with that. When I completed my master's, my project was uh, tileine discharge water and nitrates in that water. And the same thing, most of the, the research I did looking at what others had done, as well as my own experience with my research, 
the nitrates, whether it's it's carryover, you know, fertilizer nitrate that didn't make it into, say, the corn crop, or whether it's mineralized organic matter, when we've got those long periods with nothing growing in the soil, that nitrate's really at risk for loss. Whether it's lost that fall, which generally don't get a lot of rainfall in the fall, although who knows with this fall, but Going into the spring, like Mick said earlier, you know, we don't have a crop that's actively taking up nitrogen when we're talking corn until, you know, mid-June. We get to corn to about V6, V8, and really it's probably more V8 and on. We like to get some down at V6. We're ready for V8. But bottom line is we're not taking up a lot of nitrogen until that corn's getting to be waist high or taller. And then we need it. But until then, it can be lost. And we get a lot of rainfall in the early spring, mid-spring, into the summer lot of opportunity for loss. And your guys' job is to keep that nitrate, nitrogen, out of our drinking water. I mean, that's a big part of what you're tasked to do. So we understand that that's an issue. And, and like you said, Marie, nitrates have been going up in a lot of the municipalities and the rural wells both. So it's all in all of our best interest to try to reduce that. Dan, I want to sidetrack a little bit. One of my struggles in talking to growers on cover crops is gosh you know we can't get these cover crops in fast enough before the ground freezes or this cover crop blend doesn't handle a frost uh, what are some of the issues that we can overcome with that or what are some of the things that you're you guys are looking at to help us well um, we're working with the nature conservancy on a interseeder and uh, this spring, we are, we are working with some cooperators, farmers, and we are going to intercede uh, crops into v, V5 to V8 corn with the idea that cover crops will sprout, germinate, and as they lose the sunlight from the corn leaves, they will go dormant. And then when the corn starts to lose the leaves in the fall, sunlight comes back, then we have cover crops growing started already. And uh, another big advantage is to have a, a, a some type of a maybe a, a wheat in this cover crop, we can get a fibrous root system, something that our native grass has always had, which is very healthy for the soil. And you know, no, wheat's a hard sell around this, this area, but it'd be an excellent uh crop rotation crop it's not going to winter kill on you so it's right. going to grow into next spring right and this is a way of getting that in in early or just like you said uh mick a way of getting that planted uh without you know with the idea that most crops just we just don't have the time after corn to get a good stand of cover crops uh so that's something we're looking at that might be able to help with that. Tim, you're going to be the devil's advocate or am I? Oh, we can both do it. <laughs> you know, my challenge with cover crops has always been as a grower, where do I make money? I, I can see where I spend money because I got to spend money in buying the seed. I got to spend money in getting it planted. But if I don't have cattle to graze it or use for that forage, where am I going to make any money on this deal? How about a herbicide program? What, what kind of herbicide program can I have down? If I'm going to intercede well, cover crops, then that's another issue. Yes, uh, most definitely. Uh, that's another thing we're going to explore and look into. And and like I say, this is very 
experimental or just at the beginning. And we have a lot to learn, but we hope uh, with a lot of cooperation that we, we can, you know, figure those things out. And, uh, uh, and like Tim said, without cattle or, uh, you, you re uh, or some way of getting the money back, you really have to look at the intrinsic value. Is that am I improving my soil health enough to cover these costs? Things we're going to try and find out. And those are long-term studies. I mean, generally, and that's been my experience with cover crop is if you're looking to, to try a cover crop for a year or two and decide whether or not it's for you, don't waste your money. It's not going to show a lot of benefit unless you're lucky in a year or two. It's a five to 10 year process. It's about getting your soil microbial life, uh, you know, more active and active through a longer period, cycling your nutrients well and building a new system. And, and all growers work in a system that they've developed for their farm. If you want to bring it in, make it part of your system, not just an add-on that you try for a year or two. Absolutely. Marie? Um, there is another option that I went to see a demonstration up in the Brazil groundwater management area, which is in the CVA area um, up near Royal Orchard, Brunswick area. Um, where they have a, it's a, it's a Hagee unit with a Montag system put on there and a John Deere system all inside, all encapsulated into one that's planting cover crop seed anywhere, September, yeah. August, you know, as soon as that corn is starting to lose leaf yep. and provide sunlight down into the bottom, which I, that seems very interesting to me. I was just in that area this last weekend and I drove out to the demonstration site to see if there was any germination yet. Didn't really see a whole lot, but in the demonstration that shows a lot of promise. That was in a no-till system where I feel like they still got some good seed to soil contact even through the residue. Mick, uh, another answer to your question. Uh, we, uh, around 400 acres around York this year we did have an airplane fly on some cover mm -hmm. crops into soybeans uh, here just last week uh, with the idea of, of hopefully with this rain we're getting, it's, it's going to help a lot to get some seed and soil contact and get that growing. And then after the harvest, you know, we don't have to wait for, uh, for the crop to come out and do some tillage or drill it. We, we can have it already germinated and, and going. It, it's another thing that we're looking at just to see how it works. Which species are you having luck with, Dan? What we've done so far is, uh, is uh, we've had the benefit of having a uh, wheat or trilocale crop mm -hmm. so we could get in there in July and end of July and plant a cover crop and we've We've had a, a really good luck with multi-species cover crop. Uh, I think you get a lot of different root systems. Mm -hmm. You get some tap root, fibrous root, uh, legumes. legumes, all the, all those. Uh, uh, the more variation you have, I think, the better food you have for the soil microbes. Yep. Yeah, my my experience has been, and what I like to see guys do is is make their primary species going in front of soybeans or grass, make their primary species going in front of corn or legume. You know, when you put a grass, a big grass, like say a, a winter rye, cereal rye, you put that in front of corn, you really run into issues both with lack of moisture and it pulling nitrogen and yellow corn early. 
you throw a legume in front of corn and, and generally it's going to do a little bit better, especially on the nitrogen side. Same thing on the soybeans, you know, again, you're increasing that biodiversity. Put a grass with your legumes as far as your cover crop, cash crop. Put a legume with your grasses as far as cover crop, cash crop when you're doing beans, corn, wheat, whatever. Um, sometimes wheat's a little bit of a challenge too. Guys don't like mixing rye with wheat, but again, legume in front of a grass. I can tell you that in Kansas, the wheat growers really don't like rye as a cover crop because that messes up their wheat crop. So that's one thing that uh, in that in that geography that I've seen a lot of uh, frustrations in. Yeah. I think an advantage of a multi-species cover crop, you don't have one crop dominate. It, they kind of hold each other in check. Uh, and, and I, I, that, that's, that, that seems, and, and also if you get a frost, some things will die, other things will keep growing. So you, you, you get a longer growing period, uh, long, uh, living root in the ground longer. It, it, it has a lot of advantages. A lot of times there's a fast grower in there that kind of provides a, a nurse crop, very similar to the way we always used to do oats and alfalfa. You know, you didn't want to just seed alfalfa on its own. You put a nurse crop with it to give you some weed control and get things going. And then that alfalfa comes behind it and you get a good stand. So other things that we probably should talk about a little bit, you know, we've talked a lot about cover crop. When we talk about, you know, loss to groundwater and think about uh, leaching, you know, Dan, when you led in with how you started with the NRD, it was a lot about irrigation management. Those two really go together, water and nitrogen, and whether or not you keep your nitrogen on your field depends a lot on water, you know, doing a better job with irrigation, not over-irrigating. And then again, like we've talked about with timing, trying to time our nitrogen so it's not sitting there in the nitrate form at risk in a high rainfall period, whenever that is. It seems like lately it's every single day. So what are some thoughts on that? I mean, what, what can we do different from an irrigation standpoint to do a better job of managing our nitrogen? Well, I think we need to manage our, our residual soil moisture. We really need to know how, how much soil moisture do I have to work with, you know, before I need to irrigate. Excessive irrigation is really a, a big component of, of nitrate leaching. In fact, in our district, uh, we are thinking of uh, eliminating uh, producers from reporting their dryland acres um, in the high nitrate areas simply because the dryland has so much less nitrate nitrogen with, with a soil test. So that that tells me that excessive irrigation is really pushing that that uh, any nitrate. Uh, that's not being used by the crop is is getting it pushed below the root zone, and once it's below the root zone, then it's eventually going to get into the aquifer. Yeah, now, Mick, I know you're a believer like I am in fertigation. If you've got that piece of equipment out there, crops need water and nitrogen at about the same rate, so use that baby to deliver some nitrogen. Exactly, Tim. I know, you know, especially in this area, you, you tend to see pivots pumping in times when we don't necessarily need that water, but they need, the, need to get that fertigation pass. But we spend a lot of money on pivots and we have to be out there to run them anyway. It's pretty easy to add a fertigation pump to that pivot and actually get the nitrogen out there when that corn plant needs it. Now, Mother Nature doesn't always cooperate with us on that, but 
we can we can move around some of those things, issues. Marie, what do you see from other stakeholders, from the university, from other people that you talk to? What what what's their interest in this, and what are their concerns, and what direction would they like to see us head? Um, well, in visiting with the university, you know, they're falling in line kind of with with Mick that split application. You know, a little on before planting, but let's put the majority of that nitrogen on after planting when that plant needs it. Um, as far as um, NRCS, you know, they have different programs that also help to promote, you know, through EQIP and, and the conservation, conservation Securities Program, you know, incentivizing farmers that are doing those types of practices, the irrigation scheduling, the soil moisture, the, the split applications, the cover crops, you know, providing some incentive there, um, even in through EQIP with their cover crop programs. Um, DEE, you know, the Department of, formerly the Department of Environmental Quality, now it's the Department of Environment and Energy. You know, they see it from a different perspective when they're seeing municipal samples coming through that are, that are where some of the municipalities are having to be put on administrative order for nitrates in their wells, and they have to pull wells offline and, and the amount of money that it costs some of these communities to try to find clean water or to develop well fields like the city of York and the city of Seward have where they can locate all of their wells on, on one or two tracts of land with the thought of, I know at some point I'm gonna have to treat this. And so I need to be able to channel that all of that water into one line so it can go into a treatment plant. You know, they're already planning for the, that millions and millions of dollars, you know, to provide clean drinking water. And that's not even accounting for the rural residents, you know, the farmers, the rural acreage owners, you know, get your water tested. You know, we'll do it for free. You know, know what your nitrates are. Um, they're beginning to find out that, that maybe nitrates are more than just methemoglobin anemia, you know, that there's more to it. And I think with time, they'll have a lot more answers and a lot more insight, you know, from medical research too. And that methemoglobin anemia was the, the blue baby syndrome they talked about, yeah. you know, and again, you can't get enough oxygen through your system because of, again, high nitrates. What are those critical levels that you focus on and what is the EPA's critical level for safe drinking water for some of our listeners who may not know? Okay. Um, EPA says the safe drinking water is 10 parts per million, per parts per million, excuse of nitrate, me, nitrogen. of nitrate, nitrogen in the water. Um, currently, our rules are set that we go through a network of dedicated monitoring wells. You know, it's their irrigation and domestic wells that our, your producers or our producers are allowing us to sample, but we sample them on an annual basis or at least on a three-year basis and are tracking those nitrate levels. Um, we look at the median nitrate level for each of our management zones mm -hmm. that we have set up. And we currently have 12. Those zones were set up based on geology, um, aquifer thickness, um, just formation primarily, that geological component. Um, we look at the median nitrate level and our triggers are set at seven parts per million. So as we see nit the median nitrate level approaching that, that safe drinking water standard, we wanna start taking some action and doing some producer education, doing some, some irrigation soil moisture, irrigation scheduling education, and, and trying to help our farmers become a little bit more aware 
you know, that, hey, we're seeing these trends. Um, our second trigger then is at the safe drinking water standard of 10 parts per million. We currently only ha have six townships in our district that are in that phase, what we call a phase three management. And in that area, we are we do require our farmers if they apply fall anhydrous to use um, an NSERV product. A nitrification, nitrification inhibitor. Nitrification inhibitor. Yep. Yep. Um, we do require them to take soil water samples from their irrigation wells once every three years. Um, to account for the nitrates in that yeah, water. Yeah, well, and to increase awareness. Yep. Because one well, depending upon its construction, its depth, its screen location, and the material, and the practices that were done on the land surface over long periods of time, one well can be low, but the well right next to it could be very high. Um, so it's a kind of an awareness. Sure. So now is when we take kind of a normal uh, break in our show and talk a little bit about a funny farm story. So, Dan, I hear you had a run-in with a bull. Is that correct? That's right, Tim. Uh, it was about two years ago. I was moving two Angus bulls uh, into another field, and I had them in a small pen getting ready to run them up the alleyway in the trailer. Uh, and I was just standing there waiting for the guy that was helping me. Uh, to move around and get the gate open. And then all of a sudden one decided to uh, charge me. And I, I took off running, but I, the bull was way faster than I was. <laughs> You're not a sprinter. Huh? I am not a sprinter, uh, especially at my age. And uh, he uh, kind of caught me from behind and picked with his head, picked me up and just threw me into the corral panels. And I hit that and fell down and then he was on top of me with his head and and uh I thought well this is how I'm going to die. Yeah, uh huh. <laughs> uh luckily the guy that was with me jumped in and kind of got his attention and he helped me crawl over the fence but he 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 was so excited to call the ambulance he let me lay right on the other side of the fence. And here came the bull again and he came up and and was staring at me and snorting and I I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk to get him to move me. And so I had to lay there and stare at that bull. And he stared at me. He's just there gloating about yeah, taking he, you down. He said, I showed you, I guess. And, uh, anyway, it turned out fine. I got a helicopter ride out of the deal to Lincoln and just had just had broken ribs and one long cut, cut a little bit. But uh, good. Uh, well, and you it's got the fun. final word, didn't you? And you hauled it to market. I, I did. He he didn't last long after that. I I sold him. I sold him. He did weigh twenty two hundred pounds, so he was a pretty good size. Uh, My question is, how did he taste? I, I don't want to know. I, so I let somebody else do that. I, I he didn't want nothing to do with him. I always like it that with bulls we do get the final word because I've been knocked around by one a time or two as well and. He tasted really good. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people not get knocked around by bulls by choice, though. <laughs> That's right. You mixed that a little bit of rodeo time. Yeah, I know so, what yeah. a rodeo clown feels like now. Uh -huh. I, get, I get hit, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, kind of wrap up our discussion. You know, one thing I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit, and you brought it up, Marie. You know, when we talk about your your different uh, areas and the different geologies, you know, sometimes we forget that nitrogen movement isn't just about products we apply 
or rainfall or irrigation. It's also about things like depth of groundwater, soil type, and whether or not you're going to denitrify versus leaching. And it sounds like you guys have put quite a bit of thought, or the NRD through history put quite a bit of thought into that. Talk about that just a little bit for us. Yeah. Um, the, for anybody who doesn't know, the NRDs were started by legis Nebraska legislation in 1972. I think the actual legislative bill was in 1969, but it wasn't until 72 that the districts began to take shape. Uh, in 1978, our board at that time already saw that as a leader in irrigated agriculture, at that time, furrow irrigation, you know, with the dawning of center pivots, that we we could see some potential problems. Um, so they enlisted the help of, of the university and at that time, uh, the, the Department of Environmental Quality and the United States Geological Survey Division out of the Lincoln office to, to do some studies. So let's look at what does our district not only look like on the land surface, but vertically through the, that geology. Um, and, and so all of those agencies helped in developing our groundwater monitoring areas and our program. Sure, absolutely. As uh, you know, we kind of think this through a little, Mick, you know, we in the industry have probably had limited interactions with the natural resource districts, although I know you've served a little bit on one of their boards. How could we collaborate a little bit better with our growers working with the NRDs going forward in, in your thoughts? I think, Tim, as, as long as we have that open communication with them and we have an understanding of the NRD that they fall under because our geography is large and we have a little bit of understanding of, of what their regulations are at those in those different NRDs, uh, we can work with the growers and, and help educate them and help them have a better relationship with the, with the NRD. That's an important point right there. You know, the, the education side of it, you know, we as, as uh, suppliers, cooperatives and ag retailers, you know, we provide the products and we give them some education, the products and, you know, what we think works in their area and what we think probably wouldn't work as well. There's opportunity for us to work together in some of the education for our growers and, you know, work with our growers and better understand what their needs are and what each of us could bring to the table. You know, we've kind of hit about the end of the time for uh, our discussion here today, but I'd like to continue this into another segment. So uh, we'll keep you guys around and and, uh, and do a little bit more recording here. But I want to thank you both for coming because we know we've got a lot that we can do to, to improve our use of nitrogen, both in efficiency and growing our crops better and limit that impact that we've got to the environment. So with Mick Godekin and Tim Undorf, and this has been Soil Talk. Thank you for joining us today on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CVA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cvacoop.com, and you can see our precision-focused blog videos every Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Tim Mundorf. Mm -hmm.